Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Today we are in the book of Luke, um, chapter 12, verses 49 through 56. And I will be honest, I think this is a very hard passage to read. I think it's, it has, it's harsh to the ears. And honestly, it's the kind of passage that on first glance, I might not want to preach on. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I can understand that. So I think, and I get to, so I think it's going to be fun to pull this apart and really put it into some context. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think of all the passages in the gospel that the gospel tradition that have that have been difficult to to hear just to even hear mm-hmm. Jesus say to, it it's hard to hear this is hard to hear Jesus say it and it makes it makes it difficult you know definitely difficult to preach or teach but just difficult even to hear mm-hmm. uh, but i think it's important for us to 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 dig into it because it's central to our understanding of the consequences of embrace, embracing this message that Jesus has in Luke's gospel right. about the kingdom of God in the context of the Greco-Roman and social, Jewish social worlds. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I really think that's what's going on here is that Jesus is, is talking about, you know, right. that, that there are going to be some, 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 they're going to, they're going to be some things that are going to happen to people who embrace the kingdom that aren't going to be so pleasant. Right. Yeah. Which is, yeah. And yeah. that's probably, that's probably sounds like a, a massive understatement when you, when you consider that the very beginning of, of the passage in verse 49 is I've come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already ablaze. You know, that it's just, it just sounds like, wait, it's, this is Jesus. No, it, it just doesn't sound like Jesus yeah. at all. I mean, mm-hmm. it just sounds blatantly contradictory to what we have heard about and from Jesus up to now. And, you know, I just want to remind us that Jesus announced his purpose in his preaching at Nazareth, um, which Luke reports as the inaugural event of Jesus' mm-hmm. ministry, as we recall, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release mm-hmm. to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in Luke 4, 18 and 19. And as we saw when we discussed this passage earlier this year, Jesus' ministry is one of release, and 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 that it's the same word aphesis is used mm-hmm. for for free for releasing the captives and for forgiving sins uh, and while he's quoting from Isaiah 61 1 through 2 either Jesus or Luke leaves out and the year of vengeance of our God which is the way the passage goes on in Isaiah 61 right. 2 and that seems intentional so you know in in Luke's gospel Jesus ministry is meant to be about restoration and not destruction and so this whole talk about casting fire it's, on the earth just right. seems bizarre i'm 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 seeing two things here in terms of non-bible scholar interpretation reading this that that i think our congregations might come with one uh, is the group of people that say see this is an example of the the bible contradicting itself Mm, yeah that's one or the other is the other is some kind of literalist approach that actually is you know claiming Jesus, Jesus is, is coming, to bring coming to bring fire. fire and I yeah, think we've seen yeah. both of those we interpretations have, in popular, mm. um, I guess, popular culture or perhaps in extreme movements. Well, so, and I think in our context, we, the, the former would probably be more common is that people just see this as, as a contradiction exactly. and they just kind of ignore it. Um, you know, um, 
And I understand that because it doesn't seem to fit. And I'm hoping that what we have to, and you know, one of the things we're going to see is that this passage is only this statement. I have come to cast fire upon the earth is only found in Luke's gospel in this verse in the whole gospel, in the whole canonical gospel tradition. Now, there are a couple of extra extra um, biblical references, but to that to this saying uh, that Jesus said this. But um, um, you know, th- this is a unique saying in Luke's mm. gospel, and so you know, we're dealing with something that's that that does stand out like a sore thumb. I think what's interesting when I think about this in the context of Luke, who we've already talked about as being so edgy mm-hmm. all the way through, and his mm-hmm. message has been so um, visceral, yeah. that this kind of fits with Luke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and, and you know, we're just getting into the, the, the travel narrative of the journey to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which is the edgiest part of Luke's right. gospel. And so we've got a lot more edginess to go. Right. But yeah, I think, I think it does fit with that sort of general tenor of this whole section of Luke's gospel. Okay. Now, you know, Jesus' Jesus' statement about the purpose of his, of his ministry at Nazareth is consistent with Jesus' other statements of purpose mm-hmm. in the gospel. In verse 4, 43, he says he's come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, and so he's leaving Capernaum and, and going on to other mm-hmm. cities. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 32, he's, he's come to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so this justifies his ministry among people mm-hmm. that the religious leaders think are beneath him. Right. And then in, in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 10, he's come to seek and to save the lost. But again, none of this really prepares us for the shocking statement that no, Jesus makes no. here. No, huh? those are much softer than this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, we might see some connection between Jesus' statement about casting fire upon the earth and John the Baptist's statement about mm-hmm. Jesus, that he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. You know, th- th- there are only a handful of times when the word fire even occurs in, in Luke's gospel. Oh, mm. And and this is one of them, that, that Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. But I think we've also observed before that John's understanding of Jesus' ministry um, seems to be, have been much more sort of judgment-oriented than Jesus' own understanding. And I think we can also compare as well James and John wanting to call down fire upon a Samaritan village that refused to welcome them in chapter 9, mm-hmm. verse 45. But later in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus will speak of fire in connection with Sodom and Gomorrah mm-hmm. as a warning about the day on which the Son of Man is revealed in, in Luke 17, 29-30. And the whole setting of that discourse relates to the trials associated mm-hmm. with the future fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And it's really similar to the way the prophets spoke about the coming of the day of the Lord. Um, the coming of the day of the Lord in the prophets was a day of, of um, you know, restoring the faithful remnant. Mm-hmm. It was a day of, of um, bringing back those who had been oppressed and, and, and relieving, you know, setting right the wrongs. But it was also a day of, of judgment for those who had, had um um, you know, abused justice or taken advantage or, you know, had, had oppressed people. And so um, this is kind of the image of the day of the Lord in the prophets. And really, if you look at the use of fire in the gospel tradition as a whole, you know, it, it is an image that's consistent with judgment or even punishment. And again, that's hard for us to hear on Jesus' lips. Right. You know, you know, we talked about about um, the, the use of fire in Mark's gospel, you know, I, I made a pretty good case for saying this was something that probably could be attributed to Mark's or Mark's community embracing the apocalyptic um, 
ideas that were going around in Jesus' day, and, and I wouldn't necessarily want to attribute that to Jesus. And, and I, 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 want to, I want to stick by that here, because I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think Jesus is talking about some kind of apocalyptic scenario here. I think the language is different from that. Okay, fair enough. Now, again, as I said, this statement only occurs in Luke's gospel, but both Origen and the Gospel of Thomas have similar statements about fire. Okay. In fact, Origen quotes Jesus to say, whoever is near me is near the fire, and whoever is far from me is far from the kingdom. <laughs> so he equates the kingdom oh, with fire, huh. which is kind of interesting. Um, uh, ironically, also, the Gospel of Thomas's uh, statement is very, very close to the one we find here in Luke's Gospel. Now, I think the conclusion that Jesus sees some kind of judgment associated with his ministry is inescapable, but I think it's the nature of that judgment that we have to seek to understand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the crux of all this, you know, trying to figure out, is this a contradiction in terms? Or are we to take it literally as if Jesus is bringing this apocalyptic conflagration, mm-hmm. you know? And I, th- I think the, ne- the next statement Jesus makes confirms that Jesus sees it as a, as a part of his ministry. He says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what constraint I'm under until it is completed in mm-hmm. verse 50. Now, you know, again, there may be an echo of Jesus' original commission at, the, at his baptism by John, but I think the more logical reference here is looking forward to his death on the cross. Mm. And I think about the similar, the, the only real uh, comparable statement to this statement in, in Luke twelve fifty in the gospel tradition is found in Mark 10, 38 through 39, huh. where James and John come and ask him for the highest places right, in the kingdom. Right. And he says, you know, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Can you, can you undergo this as well? And right. they say, yes, we can. Right. Okay. Um, so that's the only the place where we have a, a, a similar statement to this one in Luke twelve fifty. What's striking me here is I think, I think we often think of Jesus' conversation in these these wonderful, soothing words, but we know that he's going to die mm-hmm. this 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 bloody, painful, ugly death. And I think this kind of pushes us out of this kind yeah. of soft Surely. image because this is um, we like the image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, mm-hmm. but you don't get crucified for being gentle and meek and mild. You right. Know? Um, uh, and we've, we've explored some of that and we're going to, we're going to bring some of that into our, our treatment of this passage. Right. Definitely. And I think there's a sense of, in the meek and mildness, also this kind of complacency about, mm-hmm. well, we don't really. And so this really pushes the imagery and kind of, it kind of, and as I said, I'm kind of going more just even for how it falls on my ears in terms of this makes this makes it much more urgent. This mm-hmm. this means it's yep. I need to I need to act. Yeah, yeah, yep. I agree, and, and you know I think Jesus clearly understands that his alignment with the kingdom of God and his ministry of inaugurating that kingdom is going to lead him to his death. And I think in a similar way, what's going on here is this judgment that he's addressing here, that he's talking about, refers to the consequences that those who decide to follow him can expect, basically. Their choice to align themselves with the kingdom of God will disrupt their lives and their relationships in ways that they probably um, would not have expected. Yeah. So, so I think that's kind of the, 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 the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's kind of the essence of it, and we'll see how that kind of plays itself out as we as we go on. Mm-hmm. I think you know, in verse fifty-one, Jesus proceeds to spell out this disruption 
that identifying oneself with the kingdom of God will bring. He says, do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And again, it seems flatly contradictory Mm -hmm. to the notions of Jesus' ministry that Luke has emphasized up to now. Right, right. Um, And, you know, we have the announcement of the angelic host to the shepherds, heralding Jesus' birth as bringing peace on earth. Uh, and which is almost a, a um, you know in direct contrast with fire on the earth, right? And right. It contrasts with Jesus' own instructions to the seventy or the seventy-two as they went out to proclaim his king, the kingdom, that they were to bring peace to the household they entered, and that their peace would remain as long as a, a person of peace was there. Right. Um, this part of the lesson um, about not bringing peace but bringing division, is paralleled in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. But interestingly, instead of division, Matthew has, I have come to bring a sword. Yeah. Which is, yeah, that, that's also imagery that's hard to, mm-hmm. hard to hear. Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to hear and it's hard to, uh, honestly, it is hard to make sense of. I can see mm-hmm. you just kind of want to jump right over it. You just want um, to assume that this is some sort of outlier and that somehow mm-hmm. this reflects something that one of the gospel writers came up with or one of the gospel traditioners came up with, and we don't want to really attribute it to Jesus. The thing that's coming to mind, and maybe you're planning on addressing this, though, is the audience. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and to some extent, as I think about that audience, and even a modern-day audience hearing it, mm-hmm. again, it comes back to that urgency of... of you know, oh, I can and get around to following Jesus sometime. I have better things to do, and there's really this sense of, but that is always going to leave you in a, always going to leave you in a sense of division. I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I just there's something. Uh, there about could it. there could be something to that. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it's more. I think it's more of you know. I mean, we have to think about the fact that Luke was written probably after Jerusalem was destroyed. True, exactly. And and um, while, you know, we're not talking about the full-blown proscription against Christianity that wouldn't come until A.D. 250, um, you know, um, it was getting, I mean, we, right. can, we can read in the New Testament that it was getting dangerous, right, you know, true. for people to identify publicly as Christians. Right, right. So in living in that space, that's true is is going to impact mm-hmm. um when you, jesus there's not really peace there jesus came and there's no peace so yeah 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 now i think there are some hints that foreshadow what jesus is saying here in luke's gospel you know most clearly when when simeon uh, meets jesus at the t- at the time when joseph and mary are presenting him at the temple uh, Simeon thanks God for dismissing, dismissing him in peace. In other words, allowing him to finish his life's, life's work because he, Luke says he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. But when he blessed Joseph and Mary, he said, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many mm-hmm. in Israel. And it's easy to just kind of skip over that and just let the resonance of right. peace on earth, you know, just kind of... Um, um, overshadow it but even you know we saw with with the magnificat and even mm-hmm. with joseph yes, uh, with, yes. with zacharias benedictus you know there were there were ideas already that jesus is going to turn the world upside down he's gonna you know the the rich are going to be poor and the poor are going to be rich the 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 higher going to be low and the lower going to be lifted up, you know, mm-hmm. and and you know when that happens, people don't react too peacefully. Right, <laughs> they don't right. like that. 
Um, you really, and actually, I mean, despite the beautiful announcement that Jesus made in Luke chapter four of the year of the Lord's favor in Nazareth, the synagogue crowd, as we mentioned before, many of whom may have actually known Jesus, grew enraged by his extension of the Lord's blessings beyond the limits that they could accept. And they tried to kill him. That's right. So, you know, and, and the rising opposition from the Jewish leaders reaches a point early in Luke's narrative where they are filled with fury toward Mm -hmm. him in Luke 6, 11. So, you know, as we've noted many times, Jesus was overturning the religious and social norms regarding the distinctions between unclean and clean, Mm -hmm. which were at the heart of Judaism and not, not just the Jewish religion, but also their society. And as well, the norms regarding the obligations of patronage, which went all the way from oh, the lowest yes. slave mm-hmm. to, to Caesar right, you know, right. uh, in Rome. And so all of this, along with, and besides that, we have two of Jesus' explicit pastoral predictions in Luke 9.22 and 9.44 that, that helps us to, I think, set this statement mm-hmm. into its context. What, as you're talking here, what is striking me is how casually we kind of pass by they tried to kill him mm-hmm. oh you know i think maybe it's our is our current day look i mean they tried to kill him yes this is this is dangerous people, this is scary the, this the, is, the town where he grew up people yeah. who knew him as a boy yeah, tried to kill him tried to kill him and then likewise <laughs> likewise filled with fury yeah. oh we kind of read that by and, uh, but I, I i think we're not giving the words mm-hmm. really the fullness of what of the power that they're meant to convey yeah. and when you finally as you said, when you're doing that, then we have background with sets into it that it makes it makes more sense. Well, part context. of the problem is that, that our own practice of, of the Christian faith has become a part of the current status quo. Yes, it's easy to be a Christian. And, and we, we, you know, we, we, we want that Christianity to be comfortable and we don't want to hear the, the uncomfortable things that are in the Bible, especially... If it's on the words of Je- on the lips of Jesus, that's <laughs> so. I, no, that's that's very that's very true, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now the theme then that the division that the kingdom of God would provoke the word is diamaris mas. It's only used here. The noun is only used here in the New Testament. The verb is used a number of times, but and the verb's used twice in the next two verses in verse fifty-two and verse fifty-three to divide. Um, the 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 emphasis I think sort of just the, re- the, the repetition just sort of emphasizes this theme of division. And Jesus says, from now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three in verse 52. And this statement also is unique to Luke's gospel in the canonical gospel tradition. But there is a very similar statement in the gospel of Thomas in paragraph 16. So this is interesting that Thomas mm-hmm. Thomas has some two of these, right. these statements that are only found in Luke's gospel. Now, Jesus further indicates the nature of the division by quoting Micah 7, 6, which in the original context addresses the consequences of the total breakdown of justice in Judah as something that tears even the fabric of the household. But here, Jesus applies that language, the language of the prophet Micah, to the effect that the kingdom of God will have even on conventional family bonds. Mm. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law in verse 53. I think, again, this, this is part of what makes this passage so hard for us to hear is because in our version of the Christian faith, the Christian faith is supposed to be pro-family. It's supposed to be about healthy families and happy right, families right, and whole right, families. Right. And Jesus is talking about families being divided 
by their um, commitment to the kingdom of God. Right, right. It, it, it's really hard to read as we this mm. one. This in particular is just well. It cuts so much against the grain of but, our, our understanding of what Christianity is supposed to look like. But I think we see it, and yeah. I do think we see it in today's world. You know, I, I think we see this division of of, of families um, by those who are trying to follow the church and well, those who and don't. You're, you're gonna, we're going to see it in the New Testament as well. I mean, it's very clearly referred to in in, new, in a lot of places in the New Testament. And again, I think, you know, I just want to point out, we've already seen that the foundation of Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom is a vision of God that differs dramatically from the one that was current in Judaism. Their idea yes, was yes. a God who separated things into clean and unclean, and you, right. you know that was the basis upon which you judge your status in society and 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 your your relative holiness. And and Jesus just cut against the grain of that. Mm-hmm. It was a vision of the kingdom itself that was one that was one of release that was create that would create standards of conduct that just cut against the grain of almost all the social norms. And it follows, therefore, that those who align their lives with Jesus' vision of the kingdom and Jesus' vision of God must expect opposition even from within their own household. Mm-hmm. And again, we have to realize and remember that the household in the first century world was not just the nuclear family. Right, right. It was everybody who was associated with the household. And, and that, this, that this, in fact, happened can be seen first and foremost in First Peter, where wives and slaves who converted to faith in Jesus were pressured or even perhaps coerced to give up their faith in favor of the religion of the household. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, because in that day, um, you know, worshiping the emperor was basically a test of loyalty. Yep. yep. It was the equivalent of being a, a loyal Roman citizen, you know. Mm-hmm. And so and and I'm you know the, the same thing could be true in Jewish context, you know, being being true to the traditional Jewish religion right. would have been a sense of loyalty not only to the family but also to God and and to go against that would have been blasphemy. Right. And and right. so, you know, we we see in 1 Peter Already, you know, the, the, the results that this is having on households right, in, in right. the first century world. As you're, as you're talking there, I keep thinking of um, um, Paul and Tekla. Um, that, yes. Uh, yes. that resource there, the, the non-canonical piece that, you know, where Paul is actually encouraging Tekla to, 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 to fall into the expected um, role of society, mm-hmm. which really it doesn't fit who Paul really is. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, right. uh, it's not included, but it was kind of, it's kind of an interesting mm-hmm. tension that you sure. see, which I do think is fair to comment on that. Um, the tension that you see between fitting into your role in the household and following Christ right. and what that really means. Right. So, uh, you know, there's some pieces there. And, and that's definitely going on in the background of first Peter. I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, I think for this reason, it's not surprising that some of the later New Testament documents speak of the community of disciples as the new household of God. I mean, I think some of them were literally forced from their households and had to, had to find a place in a new yeah. household. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and I think this is why we also see particular congregations mentioned in Romans chapter 16. We have all these lists of names and we t- Typically, just skip over all those lists of names, but all those lists of names are, are, are sounds like household churches, mm-hmm. and these are yeah. groupings of people who are who are grouped together in household churches. And so we have these particular congregations organized around Christian households, and those who joined them because perhaps they were expelled from their own households. Right. right. Yeah. Mm. So I think this I think this is the nature of the judgment or the fire that Jesus is bringing to the earth. It's the message of the kingdom itself. 
and the particular understanding of who, Jesus, who God is and what God is about, the kind of behavioral norms that created that were that that all of that created for those who would follow the kingdom all of that creates a crisis the relatively stable status quo of the pax romana you know mm-hmm. would not stand and those who hear the message must choose whether to align their lives with god's kingdom those who do not align their lives with god's, god's kingdom will actively oppose those who do mm-hmm. i think you know, you just said something really important there, and I'm not sure our um, listeners understand that. Yeah, this period in Roman history is known as the Pax Romana, right. and yet, as we are pointing out, it's 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 a piece that's it's a it's a piece of the Roman Empire that's based on military might, right? And it's a very strange based on military might, based on economic prosperity. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. that too. Yeah. That too. So it's a very interesting. I mean, I think that was an important point to make mm-hmm. here is that God's kingdom is and God's peace is different but it's not necessarily um, without conflict with the yes with the human space. with with the the kingdoms of this world right you know the exactly. kingdom of God is going to create um, uh, basically is such that it is going to create conflict right. with the kingdoms of this world yeah. because the kingdoms of this world will not will not abide those who exactly. align themselves with the kingdom of God exactly yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. So then our lesson concludes with what seems like a different topic altogether, but it connects, I think, with the themes that have been associated with the crisis of discipleship in Luke's gospel in the travel narrative up to, up to now. Now, we noted before that Jesus is speaking to an audience that consists of both his disciples and the crowds, but it seems that in this particular saying, he's relating to those who constantly came to him seeking signs. And, you know, we... Those of us who are familiar with the synoptic gospel tradition are familiar with Jesus' negative treatment of signs in the synoptic mm-hmm. gospel and luke is no different in luke eleven sixteen, 16 uh, luke says others to test him kept demanding from him a sign from heaven and this is a negative kind of statement in luke's gospel or in luke eleven twenty nine through 32 jesus says this generation is an evil generation it asks for a sign but no sign will be given it, to it except the sign of jonah yeah. and he goes on and so you know this whole idea of, of seeking signs you know um uh, basically um, is a negative idea in the Synoptic Gospels. And here he criticizes the crowds for being able to interpret the weather. Uh, you know, it's just kind of common sense that when the wind comes from the Mediterranean, there's going to be rain, and when it comes from the south, it's going to be hot. You know, that's mm-hmm. just how it worked in that day. They're able to interpret the weather, but they don't know how to interpret the present time. And the implication is that all the necessary signs are present in what Jesus was doing mm-hmm. and teaching and mm-hmm. even in the opposition that his ministry was provoking. And I think that's yep, why Luke yep, puts yep. that passage here is because one of the signs that they should have been able to recognize with this was that this very division, right. even within households, that the kingdom of God was going to provoke was a sign of its presence. Mm. And so all the necessary signs are presence and present, and they should have been able to discern or interpret the meaning of what was happening in front of them. And thus the chapter ends on the note it began. Jesus began in chapter 12 by warning his disciples against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and he concludes with a warning against a kind of hypocritical ignorance mm-hmm. that prevented yep, many yep. from aligning their lives with the kingdom of God. Yes. They didn't want to mess with the status quo. Exactly. They didn't want to mess with, with the way things were, and, and so they, they, they pretended not to see. And oddly, I think that's appropriate for today as well. Yeah, so. definitely. Great. We'll be back in just a little bit, and I will tell you a little about the Reformers' response. Thanks, Christy.
Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to ask Christy to uh, take us through the Reformation and how they treated this passage. We're going to find some things that sound uh, a bit familiar to what we've already said, but we're also going to find some interesting things. (laughs) Yes, we are. So uh, tell us what you found, Christy. Sure, sure. And so I looked mostly at the Reformation commentaries for this, so it has a a variety of voices during the 16th century in there. And there's kind of a general general consensus amongst them is that they're trying to make sense of this passage, which has violent and harsh images with within the context of, of the Bible, you know, and, and, and this idea that, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so how can Jesus be indeed the Prince of Peace and say all these things about division? So they struggled with the same thing that we are having. And as a whole, they actually do not see this as a predictive tone that Jesus is there to divide people, much as we did as right, well. Right. And I thought, I think we have an assumption that the reformers tended to be a little bit um, literal mm-hmm. in their interpretation, but they, they recognized the context. Yeah, and they, they seem to be getting it here. Yeah, they really, here in particular. And so um, they, they're like, look, the message about Jesus bringing peace is overwhelming. Um, but... They do see this as a warning to those who are listening to Jesus but continue to work against Mm, him. That's interesting, yeah. So the Reformers agree, if you will, that this is a commentary on the human world and the division that occurs with those who have not followed Christ. In other words, saying, look, you can't... there's going to be this kind of this natural division that happens right. by those who are following God and in God's space and those who continue to follow the human world. Yeah. Um, as I, as I put in here, those who get it and those who don't. Right, right. <laughs> um, and that division is ultimately from human sin. And so this is kind of our, our overarching background. But I wanted to pull out some kind of fun, interesting pieces. And the first one, which actually is referencing the last verse in here, is that the Roman Catholics, we were using this um, to justify the doctrine of purgatory. <laughs> let, me, let me pull up that verse right quick for them. Pull it up oh, yes, quick. because we didn't quite go yeah, here. We didn't quite go there. But I do yeah. think it's interesting because it fits in that, in that last verse, this idea that I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Right, yeah, it's the, it's the last three verses of the chapter. Um, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Thus, when you go with your accuser before a magistrate or on the way, make, make an effort to reach a settlement, or you may be dragged before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. You know, that's the that's actually the conclusion of the passage. Of the, right, yeah. which is not actually in the lectionary, but it, it, it they included it within this, the, the, when they interpreted by the reformers, they were putting this together with mm-hmm. it. So, mm-hmm. um, but I thought that was kind of interesting because obviously our reformers reject that doctrine and indeed um, point out that the, the church fathers did not use this verse to argue for the existence of purgatory. And for what it's worth, um, this whole doctrine didn't come about till the 13th century. That's yeah. when it was codified. <laughs> and uh, obviously the reformers argued that this doctrine is not biblical and not compatible, compatible with the justification by faith alone. Well, especially when you have this whole system of indulgences where you can buy your way or your it's loved just, one's way out of purgatory, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, what yeah. sense does that make? Yeah. Purgatory is supposed to be actually purging you of your sins so that you can be in the holy right, presence of right, God. Right. How does how does a loved one's monetary donations to the church accomplish that? Well, exactly. <laughs> but I thought this was kind of interesting that this as I said, I guess the fullness of this passage is used as one of those. But what 
What also strikes me is their desire to use this as like a, te- a proof text right. for that, where our reformers are recognizing this isn't proof text kind of stuff. Yes. This has to be within yes. a broader context of who Christ is. So I'm well, definitely... And I, you know, I didn't really address that because I'd already kind of gone into too much detail as it was. But, you know, I would say that in Luke's... So in, in Matthew's we may re- recognize this this passage from Matthew chapter five because it's in the context of Matthew chapter five, uh, where where Jesus is talking about you know you, you know the the, the commandments and mm-hmm. and you know I've heard it said by the old by by those of old but I say to you, and, and so it's in that kind of setting there and he's he's urging reconciliation you know avoid um, avoid going to court because at all costs. But here, I think it's a very different kind of implication because we have to take in the context of Luke chapter 12 and this whole setting of this sort of crisis. And, and, you know, the passage begins with that statement, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? You know, he's still, he's still sort of, um, holding the crowd's feet to the fire about the fact that they have not been able to recognize that, you know, here in Jesus, we have the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And so this is a statement that kind of goes along with that, that, you know, hey, there are, there are going to be consequences to your choices right. if you choose to reject the kingdom of God. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and um, back again to this kind of Roman Catholic exegesis style, you know, clearly it's a tradition that's based on tradition Mm -hmm. and the ancient church. And what you get is this very strange, they are not modern yet in the sense, the early modern, until we hit the Council Mm -hmm. of Trent. So you get this really awkward kind of, oh, we have to now justify our doctrine by biblical readings. Oh, okay, well, let's attach this to it. (laughs) And it's not, it's, and, and we see this happen a lot today. And this is not good Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. to Jesus. Whereas we're starting to see our reformers um, really starting to dig into the broader theology. Now, this, this well, your 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 intelligent your intelligent teenagers are going to be able to see right through that kind of right. that kind of uh, biblical exegesis. And, and we start to this improves obviously by the time we get to the Council of Trent, and they start to say, okay, we're a combination of our tradition that we mm-hmm. have recognized and also quality exit and they start to put it together but here you kind of see that yeah. that awkwardness awkwardness yeah. awkwardness well and i don't know that i brought brought it out clearly enough but what, what i was trying to say when, when with my addressing these verses in the context of luke's gospels i agree with the reformers you know you don't just take this and make it a proof text you have to take it right. in the context of luke. right yeah. right yeah and i you know that may be something we address later but i think it's one of the big problems with this text because i think sure. people have done this with well it. and it's so it's it's so different from everything else it's easy to take a text like this and and put it you know make it mean whatever right. you want it to exactly mean. Yeah. so let me go into our reformers proper so calvin um in particular he actually says look these are from the last discourses of christ and not from the time in which luke narrates i it. found that fascinating that he that he saw that as something coming from the sort of i guess the the, the last part of jesus ministry mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 and he notes that christ has very much altered um the 
Earth's human space and is coming, right? And so um, he, the one from heaven, Jesus, has come into the human sphere, and by necessity, that confuses the space inhabited by sinful humans. You know, in other words, the status quo has been right. disrupted, right. and there is a sense that the truth of Christ, of of Christ Jesus so contrasts with the world that those who do not live into the truth will be consumed by fire. Mm. I mean, and that's where that imagery is mm-hmm. coming in. Um, and Calvin instructs those. And I thought this was interesting. A lot of them claimed that this was kind of a text to ministers, right? Instructs those who are ministers of the gospel to be consistent in their office, to provide a sense of calm and confidence in the wake of this disruption. Mm, yeah. And that's, I think that's uh, just a, an amazing insight for Calvin and very pastoral, you know? Yeah. 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 I really, I really like that. Yeah. In other words, in, yeah, this is a. This is not cause for some sort of apocalyptic speculation and end times fears. This is cause. Co- this is this is something that, that is to be expected, and so pastors need to need yep. to just hold this hold the line and help right. the people stay faithful. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. I like and that. Um, a warning to the disciples that difficult times in this world are ahead for mm-hmm. those who cling to the gospel. Um, and I saw, you know, this uh, ultimately this kind of battle between good and evil mm-hmm. in, in a way. There was, and I didn't, I didn't mention it here, but um, one of the commentators was even talking about this as um, an example of evil, as and really moving away from my idea of like, um, um, you know, we've seen this in some of our reformers, this kind of um, uh, evil personified as a devil figure, right. and moving away from that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah. I thought was kind of sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Okay, um, what is clear? is that by the reformers is that the perfect of world of Christ will not happen at this time. And there will be difficult times ahead between those who follow Christ and those who don't. Um, Heinrich Bullinger writes, quote, Christ gives peace to those who are his and he leaves peace with them. But it is a peace which the world cannot give. In fact, it is the peace which the world cannot stand, but hates. Therefore, the peace of God passes all understanding. What does not make sense to our conception of peace, though, is that there will be so much discord in our human base. Yeah, we don't think of peace as being something that has that kind of dissension or that kind of exactly. that kind of conflict associated exactly. with it. But, exactly, exactly. But I, I think that's one of the things I was trying to say is, you know, that those who align themselves with this kind of peace, the kind of peace that really is characteristic of God's kingdom— it's going to provoke conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Melanchthon blames this on the wicked. Um, again, that part of that evil, not so much in a devil character, but just on on those who live in contrary to the Bible. Mm-hmm. So in this view, the Reformers, there's an urgency to sharing the gospel and help people live into the truth of Christ so that the infighting is not human experience. I Arras- find that, I find that in- fascinating that they took this passage as a call to to you know bring you know to preach the gospel i yeah. mean that, that yeah that's isn't that really, interesting yeah. It is, yeah rasmus obviously who remains roman catholic is the same sentiment um and all believe that these harsh words are a, kind of a call to arms to those folks who remained outside the gospel mm. it's kind of lazy about it so um one of the more interesting commentaries i found was on, by johannes spangenberg we, we've met him before he's a lutheran reformer a contemporary of, of martin luther who felt that the bulk of this passage is about forgiveness as forgiveness and living in a state of love and thanksgiving for all is the centerpiece of christ's peace well, i have to say from the standpoint of luke's gospel i mean that that's the mm-hmm. office yep. that's the release yep. that's the forgiveness that he announced right it is so, this forgiveness yeah. that allows us to live in christ's 
kingdom. The human space, however, is in the realm of anger and revenge. God's space is where, quote, everything is worked out with enemies and opponents, where all differences are settled. Uh, if it were only true here and now. I know. Isn't it? I think that's kind of beautiful, though. It I is, mean, it's yeah. really, really kind of impressive. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm like, well, so what? Is there anything we can pick out that is particularly insightful about the era of Reformation? Um, you know, that's different. Well, I thought one of the interesting pieces that was in this was a, book, was a piece by an Anabaptist writer, um, David Joris, um, um, who says, quote, Look, everyone is baptized, but this baptism by water does not bring the Spirit, and only a baptism by the Spirit can bring about Christ's peace. In other words... Just claiming that you're a Christian does not, in fact, identify you as a Christian. And um, it's in his space, there's this kind of skepticism that is brought into this position. He emphasizes this almost a separatist Anabaptist society where only those who are truly baptized by the Spirit can live in Christ's peace. So even particularly um, an infant baptism is what he's really attacking here doesn't do anything. He's like, it has to be where you've been called by the Spirit and then baptized by the Spirit. Well, and, and this, was, this was part of the, that's why we call it the radical reform in some respects, is because they take, you know, this quest for the true church and they, they go to extremes, you mm-hmm. know, and, and they, they, they see the magisterial reformers and their um, embrace of, of infant baptism mm-hmm. as a concession to the Roman Catholic sort of corruption and right. so in their effort to purify the church right. and to reform the church right. and to and to and to and to get back to the true church they want to go even farther right yeah and they want to and and it's i think this is really interesting because this this David Joris is a Dutch Anabaptist and I did a little work on him but it was really interesting you know he he becomes more and more radical as mm-hmm. he moves through it and, and he eventually hits the point that all outside baptisms are unnecessary this is so hmm. while he is it's initi- only the baptism of the spirit only yeah. baptism of the spirit which does not require any efforts of the human wow. beings wow and um he's 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 at the far end of this whole whole thing and he's a pretty interesting character um but what struck me here is um this kind of um the <laughs> Calvin, and I, we've talked about Calvin and Calvinism over and over and over, but Calvin himself defined a reprobate. And he, 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 he's, but there was this sense of kind of confidence of those that are aligned with the church, those are who are participating in the church are part of it. And you could be confident, this assurance of salvation that we have, right. um, an assurance of pardon too, that we have in our, um, in our liturgy is, is, is really right. that, that, that lovely confidence. Sure. Not so here. Well, There's, and I, I will say, I mean, that, that seems to be kind of a hallmark of the Anabaptist movement to some extent is as, as they go farther and farther down this path, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they, 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 they try to find, you know, what is the truth? Um, uh, Roger Williams was an early, was it was an early Baptist mm-hmm. leader in this country, you know, they, and they just get more and more separatist, yeah, and and it beca- it really brings about more and more questions about who's really, you know, well, I'm in, but maybe you're not, right? And probably and so you're it not. Starts and to lead to it, this kind of yeah. negative space, and, well, and, and, and and really, really, really undermining yeah, confidence, yeah, yeah. And so Juris uh, was 
one of the things, he was looking for the end of the world right away. He mm. became very apocalyptic in his thought. And as we've talked before, there's lots of different Anabaptist groups, some advocating for violence as the mm. means, others not. Um, and, and actually, Joris in his earlier years was trying to kind of reconcile the groups. He actually had this kind of lovely beginning, but then he just gets more and more radicalized. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, well, I could think that they would they would take a pass. Those who were looking for violence could take a passage like this yes, and go to yes. town with it. Yes, exactly. So this passage fits um, into that reality of violence within the human space, right? Uh, but um, in Yoras's teaching, he argues for a third David, Jesus being the second who would usher in a new spiritual kingdom, mm. and for him, the crucial mark of the true true children of God was baptism by the Spirit, which must be accomplished through believer's baptism, as I, and as I mm-hmm. pointed out, not even at some point any kind of... Any kind of External action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so he really got to this point. But it had kind of a, a Gnostic feeling about it, is that you could only be a true child and in the third kingdom of God, but he said you could outwardly, outwardly conform to another religious program. So you could be doing the rituals of of uh, reformed but you knew that you were really in Mm -hmm. so you got this like this secret knowledge i've really part of this special saved group and and that's and that's where that's where the questions and that's where the confidence gets undermined is because Mm -hmm. you know you you when you start drawing those boundary lines like that it just really goes crazy is he really in is he really in because i know not everyone here is in these people are faking it or these Mm -hmm. people aren't and you know it's sort of a, a, a it's it's a premise of skepticism about about Basically, that, yeah. that people are not right. that are not you know beloved by God. <laughs> well, and as I said, the problem here is it divides orthopraxis from orthodoxy mm-hmm. for a correct practice and correct belief. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this with Luther, with Calvin, with the Roman Catholics that practice and orthodoxy ultimately right. go together, and even though they're defined a little differently and how they come about, they still are. Your practice comes Together. out of your theology. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and the same thing happens with these folks. I mean, the the more radical they become, the more they reject any kind of external practice, and in the more their their spiritualism and their sort of mysticism takes over. Right. So yeah. for this guy who 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 creates this whole spiritual kingdom, it didn't really matter what anything that you did, mm-hmm. and and in fact, he actually ultimately moved to Basel, and he was living in a very, very wealthy, lavish lifestyle because it didn't really matter what he did outside. And mm-hmm. so he was very much condemned with this. And while he died on his own um, from ill health, they actually dug him up and burned him at the stake, which I think was interesting <laughs> too. Um, and so while yours is at the far end, I think it gives some idea about how these ap- um, apocalyptic style writings are pretty easily abused. Yeah. Um, and he... And uh, so um, I think at the end of the day, what we learn about this passage is that the reformers definitely saw a difference between Christ's kingdom um, that is coming and the one that is here and corrupt. And I think we see this urgency in spreading the gospel message. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Yep. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, you know we've seen already that that this is this passage is kind of one that lends itself to some of the worst 
ways that we treat the Bible. Some folks see it as just, this is an outlier and it's, you know, this isn't the Jesus that I know. And so they just ignore it. Other folks, because it's so different, they, they go to seed on it and go way out in left field. Um, the Roman Catholics took it as a proof text for purgatory, you know, and, you know, these are some of the excesses of how people treat the Bible and how people read the Bible. And, you know, um, this passage kind of presents us with sort of a, a test case of <laughs> right. how do we how do right. we how do we interpret the Bible, you know, in a way that is um, that is, you know, not only consistent with our theology, but also consistent really with with the message of the scripture itself. Right. Right. Well, and I think, and obviously the, the temptation is, ah, don't even go there. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're a lectionary preacher, which many of us are in a Presbyterian church, because we know that discipline takes us into places that are harder to preach. But mm-hmm. I know lectionary preachers who still skip the hardest passages. Mm-hmm. I did it myself on some of the passages that we've covered yeah. in, our, in our podcast. And I think it's important for us to grapple with these because these are the kinds of things that come back at us of, oh, well, I saw this in the Bible, and why don't, why don't you preach on that? And so when we tackle it straight on mm-hmm. and, and say, hey— I'm going to help you understand this. I think it really does us a lot of uh, credit, but we have to, we have to be prepared for how we're going to handle it. And so, you know, and, and the temptation is, I remember in, in seminary, we would have these, we, we would go through different, uh, different books. In fact, our book that we were really focusing in depth was Luke for um, one of my classes. And I remember there'd be texts and people would be like, Oh, not yet. <laughs> and we outlined, you know, everyone was encouraged to figure out what the lectionary texts were, maybe put little brackets so you knew. And yeah. I just remember uh, the little notes on, not yet, not yet. You know, this is a not yet passage. And so it may be not someone for, who's brand new not to tackle right away. But I think there's a lot of health in doing that because Surely. I think it also helps you with your own biblical study. And so, um, you know, I... Uh, I think I think the important thing though is is first of all to disarm to disarm your congregation from using it as a proof text. I right. mean even intelligent presbyterians who know we don't do this there's still, still this do it. temptation to yeah. be like oh and of course we know there's folks out there that do. So mm-hmm. um taking that out of saying why would you start using this as a proof text or yeah, something. Right. Uh-huh. I will say, you know, I've admitted that there are some texts that we've come across in our in the course of the last couple of years that I've never preached on, and I've intentionally avoided them. I've preached on this passage several times, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I've uh, pretty much consistently with the kind of theme that I was talking about in my segment. You know that, um, you know that 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 the kind of peace that Jesus brings is a kind of peace that um, will not abide injustice. And it will not Im- abide, um, um, you know, the kinds of of inequities that right. that, that right. are a part of the status quo, and and so so you know those who align themselves with the peace of God's kingdom are going to find themselves at odds with the people who have a vested right. interest right. in the status quo because they benefit from it. <laughs> exactly. So there's, you know, a, a really good example, and I I see this as. I see this actually is really deep philosophical stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's theological, but and it's philosophical. And I think it takes us beyond simple, nice messages to really what does it ultimately mean to be a kingdom of God? Sure. What does it mean? And we live 
we live and we function in this kind of human space and our day-to-day space. And I think very few of us step on a regular basis into what is that, frankly, in our human context, theoretical space that looks like when there truly is justice. Surely. Because in our human space, we don't ever get there. Yeah. You know, I... Yeah. It's, it, and it's, you know... Uh, most of us are pastors of purple congregations, and so mm-hmm. you know the 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 problem becomes you know if you identify with a cause that is perceived as political, then right. do you do you, what do you do with the backlash that comes at right, you? you know? Right, right. Um, I, I was fortunate um, when I when I was uh, serving in Houston. I served I served two congregations. <laughs> Actually, a friend of mine who who was on the committee on ministry there called me a, um, a, a bipolar pastor and he was joking about the fact that one of the pastors one of the one of the churches I served uh, I was serving both of them at the same time one of the churches I served some years before I came there the session had voted to send a subscription to the Presbyterian layman to every member of the church now some of you may not remember the layman I don't know if it's still out and about but back in those days the Presbyterian layman was the, just the most right-wing news um, uh, you know, outlet in the Presbyterian world, and it gave just the most critical spin on everything that came out of the General Assembly. And um, um, the other church that I was serving was a more light congregation. A more light, it was affiliated with the more light Presbyterians. <laughs> and and we, used to, we used to march in the Pride Parade in Houston. And, you know, I, I used to tell my, and, and the folks, the, 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 the way it worked for me was the folks at, at the one church had, you know, a lot of the really hard right-wing folks had kind of drifted away from right. that church. And, and the folks at the other church weren't quite so hard left-wing either. And so, you know, I, I was able to preach the same sermon at both churches on Sunday morning, right, you know? Right. Um, and, and, you know, I used to, I used to tell my folks at the other, at the church that wasn't more light about us going to the pride parade. And I, you know, I didn't have any problem with it because, you know, I, that was like an hour and a half on a Saturday night when I spent talking to people in the crowd and I wore my collar and it was a time when I could tell people that would probably never walk into a church, God loves you. Right, and so it, to me, it was an evangel- evangelistic opportunity that I didn't have any time anywhere else. Interesting, yeah. And I can't tell you how many people I, I encountered in those experiences who thanked me right, for right, being there right. because because they knew that I was there as a straight man, but I was right. there as as a man who was as somebody as a yeah, minister who yeah. was trying to so, support them. Yeah, here's an example of of how this fits into a justice theme, right, mm-hmm. and into ultimately about what recognizing the humanity of each person is within a context yeah, of sure. justice. I think I'm going to join on with Johann Spangenberg actually, and really go with more of a forgiveness sense to sure. a personal. So, I mean, what does it really mean to be in a world where you really have forgiven yeah. people? And, you know, as I listen to the news every day and I'm angry and I'm not living in a space. And so my anger puts me at odds with living in a space of really being able to forgive. And what an interesting, um, uh, what what a freeing experience, sure. right? When, when sure. I, I can only conceptualize of it, but yet, um, wow. When there, I, there's when, a, I think there's a reason why offices means both forgiveness and release. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? That's, yeah, that's that's a, a, a perfect word. We You know, when you think about, we don't really have 
a word like that in English. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I think, to me, I think, you know, w- one of the reasons why a passage like this is so hard to deal with is because you really have to dig deeply into Luke. You can't just be kind of flipping through and and just kind of casually um you know, just, oh, well, this is the reading for the week. Right. And you can't just kind of ignore the rest of Luke's gospel. Right. You have to read this passage with the rest of Luke's gospel in mind. And that's kind of what I tried to do in my segment right. was take it and place it firmly in the theology of the kingdom. Right. That theology of aphesis, which to me, I would say, that's what I was trying to represent when I was going and marching in the pride parade right. in Houston, Texas, right. was aphesis, you know, that God... You know, God accepts you. You, you know, the, trying to trying to present a message of release from the from all the the messages of rejection that these people had gotten right. from the church right. all their lives. You know, and then presenting a message of acceptance and God loves you. I remember, I remember one time. You know, the, the parade would 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 stop and start. And I remember one time, I was I was just standing there, and there was this whole group of people, and somebody shouted at me, "What's the word?" And I said, "God loves you." And this whole group of about 200 people just started cheering, you know? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And I don't, yeah. you know, the reality is like, is, like in most big cities, the Pride Parade is an opportunity for a lot of people just to go get drunk and have a party. Right. So, right. I mean, you know, was I casting my pearls before swine? I don't know, maybe. But, but I really, th- there, were, there were a lot of people that I made a personal in, one-on-one connection with that I, I mean, they shook my hand. They looked me in the eye. I could tell right. my right. being there. Well, made an impact again it's, it goes back to that what does that what does that embracing god's love really mm-hmm. look like and 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 that's seeing the and and i think that's really genuine seeing the person seeing as god sees it, mm-hmm. each person is a child of god and that's why i think that's why this is such a call to ministers not only mm-hmm. to hold the line but to spread the gospel um and 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 to have people continue to hear that yeah, we love you anyway we love yeah. you anyway and what a what a what if you finally give up those those shackles you know that yeah. are that are keeping you from from really diving into to god's kingdom wow what a ooh. What a, well, what a release! What a release! What an emphasis, right? It is. Yeah, it's yeah. a release for them, I think. And you know, it was for me too. I mean, I'll have to say, the first time I marched in that parade for about the first thirty minutes, I was pretty freaked out because you know I I can embrace a very progressive theology and a very progressive social agenda. But my personal life, I'm really <laughs> straight-laced. You yeah. know? I'm a very straight-laced person. I'm, I'm not mean about it. I'm just, I'm just very straight-laced, you know, right. and, and I'm not out there at all in any way, shape, right. or form as a person. And so the first time I went, you know, the raucousness of the party atmosphere just kind of yeah, overwhelmed me a little bit. And actually, there was an interesting moment because I, there was there was a woman from that church who was, I think, having the same kind of experience. And at one point, she looked at me and she said, are you sure God really loves everyone? And I said, yeah. And the best part is that includes even you and me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you know, it's it's not easy. It's not no. easy to get in those spaces where where you you're really actually actually trying to trying to join in the ministry of aphesis. They're join in the ministry of mm. forgiveness slash release. You right, know, right, it, right. It's not easy at all. It's not even easy to preach on this passage because no, it's just so confusing. It is confusing. It is confusing. And I've had a similar similar experience in a prison setting. You mm. know, where 
you, I mean, these people are in the shackles yeah. of a prisoner. They're in the costume. They are in the judgment of a prisoner. And, um, but when they realize that you see them as a person, not as a prisoner, it's, it's this wonderful sure. experience of, of, again, release. It's like, oh, wait, they see me. They mm-hmm. don't see the bars and the su- jumpsuit right, and all of that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, yeah, it's, and I think, so I'm hopeful. I mean, just talking with Alan here, I'm really excited about preaching this right now. Yeah. And I hope you are too. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.